everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. In today's episode, we are going deep on a subject that I have long been wanting to address on this show understanding and responding to transgender ideology. You've probably noticed that it seems everything is about transgender issues today. Why exactly is that? Why is everyone talking about transgenderism in particular? Why are we seeing an explosion of people identifying as trans? What's even involved in the transition process, in particular for the growing number of teens who are pursuing a gender change? What about the popular claim that if we don't support transitions, people will commit suicide? How as Christians do we respond to all of this in truth and love? My friend Dr. Frank Turek is joining me today to talk about all of these questions and many more, including a bunch of personal questions that were submitted by people who follow my Facebook author page. I know this is going to be a long episode, but if you want to better understand what's going on with this huge movement, it's going to be well worth your time. Frank is the author of several books, including the award-winning Legislating Morality and I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. As the president of CrossExamine.org, Frank is a dynamic speaker who presents over 100 times per year, often at secular college campuses. He has a large social media presence, a weekly TV show, and a radio show and podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist that is broadcast on 180 stations twice each week. Frank has just released the third edition of his book, Correct, Not politically correct about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. He's updated it with a brand new section dedicated to addressing the transgender topic specifically. In the book, Frank shows that the quest to obliterate all sexual distinctions is self-contradictory and the march to transition children is producing horrific and irreversible consequences. Well, we have got a lot to talk about, so let's dive in. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. Great being with you, Natasha. Can't wait to see you in a week or two. Yeah, it's going to be great. We have Cross-Examine Instructor Academy coming up. If you don't know about it, you should go to the Cross-Examine website and hear about it for next year. Too late to sign up, right, for this year, Frank? Yeah, yeah, we're pretty full at this point. If we have a cancellation, maybe you can get in at the last minute, but it starts July 27th. Whenever this is going to air this podcast, uh, it might be too late. If not, if you want to join the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy in Albuquerque, New Mexico, go to our website and check it out. Yeah, and basically it's just an opportunity for you to learn from several apologists who are authors and speakers, a lot of names that you know, and learn how to be an apologist yourself in your personal life or to step out in a ministry. It is fantastic, and I'm honored to participate in it as one of the teachers. So if that's something that you're looking into, then definitely go check that out. Well, we have a ton to talk about today, so let's, let's jump into this. Until about a decade ago, gender dysphoria only affected about one out of every 10,000 people. And most of those people were young boys who believed that they should have been girls. Today, it seems like everything is about transgender issues. So it seems to me that there are a couple of major reasons for that, and we'll get to both of them in the show. But let's just start with the fact that more people than ever are now identifying as trans. So obviously, the more people there are who are identifying in this way, the more cultural conversations there are going to be about it. But it's important to know that it is a very specific group of people in which this transgender identification explosion is happening, and that is adolescent girls. So Frank, tell us what the data shows about this group. Yeah, there's a relatively new phenomenon. As you said, Natasha, a decade or so ago, gender dysphoria, true gender dysphoria, where people really do believe they're the opposite gender, affected about one out of every 10,000 men who thought they were women, 
Now you have this, what is now known as the rapid onset gender dysphoria, where you, you, you have mostly young girls now saying, I really think I'm a boy, just almost out of nowhere. In fact, there was a study, I think, out of the UK that said over the past decade, there's been a 4,000% increase in girls saying that now they really identify as trans and they, they're, they're really boys. And the seminal work on this just a few years ago was by Abigail Schreier, not a Christian, um, but she wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, How the Transgender Craze is Seducing Our Daughters. And she's spoken at some schools where she says up to 30% of girls in certain girls' schools are claiming to be trans. And uh, she puts the blame squarely on social media, that this is a social media contagion. I mean, really, think about this. How did we go from 1 in 10,000 men thinking they were women to, in some places, 30 or 3,000 out of 10,000 girls, if the numbers are right here, suddenly claiming to be trans? It, 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 it appears that there's nothing new in, in, of course, women biology. There's nothing new in the water. What has really burst onto the scene in the past decade? It seems to be social media. And when you think about this, when you're a young person, what do you want to do? You just want to fit in. You want to be on the in crowd. And you also uh, want to, in some cases, stick it to mom and dad a little bit, you know, like, and, and, and what better way can you do that by claiming to be trans? That's going to freak mom and dad out, right? And so you see this trend happening now. Now, I need to be very clear here. There are people that truly do experience gender dysphoria. That's not the rapid onset gender dysphoria. We're talking right now about the rapid onset gender dysphoria. For people that had no prior history of any of this, and suddenly it seems out of nowhere, these young girls are claiming to be boys. And it seems that social media is the primary, primary reason for this. It's not the only reason, but it's the primary reason. The other thing that has been discovered is that many of the young girls have some sort of prior condition, whether it be autism, ADD, or they're socially awkward in some way, and they feel not at ease in their body, to which, of course, we would say, welcome to puberty. I mean, it's, it's actually, uh, it's not odd to feel odd. You ought to feel odd because puberty is one big, long transition. So... It's not unusual to feel odd when you're young, yet some young people think that that is a signal to them that now they need to transition. And we can talk about it as the show goes on, that that actually doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, hearing these statistics, if I, I didn't know anything else about it, I would probably think that it sounds crazy that Abigail Schreier in this book is saying, you know, there are up to 30 percent of kids in some schools identifying this way. I think that she's just cherry picking these examples somehow or, you know, finding the most extreme cases. But even in my relatively conservative sur suburban area, I know that in our local schools, there are groups of trans identifying kids. And I hear these stories from people everywhere. So there's no doubt that this is definitely something where you see this social influence. And like you said, so much of it, if we push back and say, well, where did that come from? Of course, there is social influence in the schools, but take it back a level. Where is that coming from? Mm. And you mentioned social media and online platforms. What exactly is going on behind the scenes? What is it about the social media that is influencing these girls so much? Well, it's not just in transgenderism, social media is, of course, influencing our culture and young people in many different areas as well, including 
whether or not Christianity can be trusted. So right. uh, there's a lot going on. I, I can I'll tell you a story about a, a, a woman that uh, is a friend of mine. This woman is a saint. Everybody loves her. She's a Christian woman. She, she'll be 70 next month. And she works at Starbucks, Natasha, not for the money, but for the ministry. Hmm. And uh, she reaches out to young people at her Starbucks who are trying to transition. And uh, she says they sit in the back room during their break, flipping through TikTok video after TikTok video that is trying to affirm what they're doing, that is trying to tell them that medically transitioning is something good for them. And they need this constant affirmation because I think deep in their hearts, they know, well, first of all, this isn't going to work because there's no way to change my biology. But they think this is somehow the solution to the angst that they feel. And so my friend says to them, you know, when I was um, in high school, which was 50 years ago, I did some things that I'm still paying for now. But what I did 50 years ago pales into comparison to what you're doing to yourself right now. Mm -hmm. That the things you're doing, particularly when it comes to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or even surgery, is something that is irreversible. And you may not think you ever want to have children, but you're what, 16, 17, five years from now, you can be in a completely different place emotionally and intellectually, and you'll want to have children. In fact, that's what happened to Chloe Cole, the famous uh, person out in California, I think she's in California, where she had her breast removed when she was 15. Yeah. And uh, we have it in the book, correct, not politically correct, her story. Um, and now she's, well, she's probably 19 by now, 18 or 19. And now she's suing her doctors because she's saying, what did you do to me? I, I didn't, I, I couldn't give informed consent to this. I was 15. And interestingly, the doctors who treated her later, uh, re- later recognized that she had autism after they had removed her breasts. I don't know if it was the doctors that treated her, but doctors later said, oh yeah, she's on the spectrum. And now she's lamenting the fact that she doesn't think she'll ever be able to have children. The wounds that they gave her still haven't completely healed. And so this is not the way forward. And my friend tries to minister to these people to try and say, look, you're a young person now. And a little bit later, we'll get into why this is not the right path. Um, but she just, she just pleads with them as someone they love because she's just so lovable they'll listen to her that's amazing what a what a powerful story a way mm-hmm. to use your retirement to get right. out there and, and make mm-hmm. a difference that's that's incredible you, know, you mentioned chloe cole i'm going to put a link into the show notes of her interview with jordan peterson yes. i don't know if you heard that frank but it is yeah. it's powerful it's fantastic if you want to hear you know so much of this is kind of us talking about transgenderism from the outside but when you, if you want to hear it straight from someone who's been through this process that interview is fantastic i i recommend everybody listen to that. Um, and you know, there's an interesting quote from her in your book. And she says, she says this when she's talking about the transition process, she says, everybody my age, I know who's transitioning or is dysphoric, they're either on the spectrum, or they have some other learning disorder, or they have depression or social anxiety, or they have a history of abuse or sexual assault, neglect or issues with their family. 
So it, it goes back to what you were talking about, about all of these mental issues and these challenges that these girls are having. And Chloe Cole is saying this is exactly what's going on. There, it, there are all kinds of issues that might lead to it, but there are underlying issues nonetheless. This isn't starting with someone saying that they really, really feel like they're in the wrong body from an early age. And you kind of made that distinction earlier. So we, we've talked about this social contagion aspect that generally happens in a school environment. And then we pushed back to say, okay, well, this starts online a lot of times with the social media influence. But we kind of have to go back another step, I think, and say, well, where did the online push come from? Because, Frank, after all, there could be all kinds of solutions that people are peddling to mental illness online. It wouldn't have to be a change in gender. Why is it that per se that we're seeing exploding today? And I had a lot of questions from people online about that. That, you know, why, why this in particular? Are kids being pushed into it? I think a major reason that this transgender identification is being pushed in particular is because of the popularity of today's critical social justice movement. It's kind of the perfect storm of all these things. We have the increase in mental illness, but then we also have the popularity of critical social justice. You put those together and you see what we've got. So let's explain that a bit for listeners who aren't familiar with critical theory and its branches. Can you just explain basically what the oppressor-oppressed model is that is so popular today as a lens? through which to see reality and how does that relate to queer theory in particular because that becomes more important yeah the the woke ideology the critical theory is to put people in certain categories based on their identity and if you're in a certain category you might be oppressed if you're in another category you might be an oppressor so everyone is in one of those two categories according to critical theory for example peoples of color would be considered oppressed whereas white people would be considered oppressors the poor and the middle class would be considered oppressed while the rich would be the oppressors uh, women and people who identify as trans would be the oppressed and uh, heterosexual men would be considered uh, the oppressors. Uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual would be considered oppressed. And of course, straight people would be considered the oppressors. I know you're, it's kind of hard to keep these two columns in your head, but just, just, just a few more. And by the way, I did a presentation on this back in October, I want to say of, uh, let's see, what would that be? 21. It's on our YouTube channel. It's about critical theory. And the thumbnail is this chart that I'm reading to you right now, basically, where you have oppressed on one side, oppressors on the other. Non-Christians would be uh, the oppressed. And of course, Christians are oppressors. The disabled would be the oppressed and able-bodied oppressors. Immigrants are oppressed and citizens are oppressors. And indigenous people are oppressed and white settlers are the oppressors. So when you look at this kind of critical theory, you realize it is a theory of conflict. There is no way to have a community, a common unity, if you continue to pit people in these two categories against one another, and it's independent of their personal behavior, Natasha. That's what's so sinister about this. You could have somebody who is in the oppressor category who might be a saint mm -hmm. morally and behaviorally, yet that person's gonna be considered an oppressor regardless of their personal behavior. And so if you're a white person and uh, you want to be considered oppressed, well, claim, claim to be LGB or claim to be tra trans or claim to be, uh, you know, a non-Christian or claim to be, uh, as some people actually claim to be peoples of color, even though they're not, right? And so that is a motivator for some people to say, 
well, look, I'm a white person, and now I'm a Christian. How can I, how can I become an oppressed uh, identity? Well, all I need to do is claim to be trans, or I claim to be women. I, I claim to be LGB or something like that. I claim to be a non-Christian. And then I'm going to get the benefits of intersectionality, and that's a whole nother, whole nother uh, discussion here. But as you can see, this is, this is a recipe for conflict, and it goes back to Marxism, actually. You know, a Marxist, uh, a Marxist way of looking at the world will never bring peace and harmony. What will bring peace and harmony? The gospel, because there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, man nor women. We're all one in Christ Jesus. You want to bring people together? The gospel. You want to divide people? Go critical theory. And that's unfortunately what many in our society have gone. Yeah, that's a really good summary. I think that it's confusing to people sometimes to think, but why do why do you want to be oppressed? Why, you know, why would you want to identify with one of these oppressor groups? But <laughs> you have to understand that oppressors, if you're in one of these oppressor classes, you are not just seen as, you know, generally belonging to a group. You are seen as morally evil. That's and right. so that's that's the underlying issue here. Like it's it's a moral claim about your intentions and your status in society that you are evil if you belong to an oppressor group. So no one wants to be a white, heterosexual, Christian, cisgender male. That is the, <laughs> the definition of oppressor. So Frank, you are the worst. I am, <laughs> you, I'm totally. You are the scourge of society, basically. So no one wants to be in those, in those groups. And so I think that this is the key to understanding what has really made the growth in transgender identification possible today. If you are a troubled adolescent, it is appealing to take on one of these identities that's marginalized because you don't want to be evil. You want to be okay with society. You can't change a race, like you said, to have a more marginalized identity. But queer theory in particular, which is a branch of critical theory applied to uh, LGBT issues, tells you that gender and sexuality are just social constructs. They have no basis in reality. So you can actually choose to be more marginalized in that way. And if you do, you're going to be told you're really brave. Mm. So if you're a confused mm. and challenged young lady and you see all these things and you're struggling with some issues, you can be told you're brave. You're going to have this online family. A lot of these detransitioners have said that this is how they found friendships and family and closeness was by finding these groups online. So kids are being sold this idea as a solution to all the mental illness issues. That's how you have, I think, this perfect storm that is pushing all this forward. But what exactly does that look like? This is the idea they're being sold. But what does it look like in practice? It's extremely difficult. There are three levels of transition I want to kind of walk through to give people a practical idea of what it means. Once somebody goes online, they're like, oh, yes, this sounds great. I want to become one a different gender. What do they do? Well, there are three things. Social transition, puberty blockers, surgery. So, Frank, take us through this. First of all, what does social transition mean? What are some examples of that? Well, that would be if you're a girl, you start to wear men's clothes. You start identifying as a man. Uh, you start uh, going online and identifying as trans. You're trying to find affirmation by changing the way you look and uh, joining a certain identity group. And I remember Tim Keller had a great illustration a number of years ago. He went out to uh, Wheaton College and he was giving a talk about this idea that we all ought to follow our hearts, you know. And of course he was saying you shouldn't follow your hearts without moral restraint, but that's basically what our culture says, follow your heart. And uh, one of the things Keller pointed out was, you're not really following your heart 
what you're doing is you're following what your culture tells you ought to follow. And he gave this illustration where he said, imagine uh, a thousand years ago, you're some Viking in Norway and you have two conflicting, uh, two conflicting desires on your heart. One is same sex attraction. And the other is that you want to use power to crush people. Now, a thousand years ago in Norway, which one of those are you going to follow? Well, you're going to suppress the same-sex attraction because culturally that was not accepted. And you're going to amplify and follow the idea that you want to crush other people to get what you want because that's what Vikings do, right? Now, take that same guy, put him in Manhattan or San Francisco or anywhere in America practically now at this time and say he has those same two uh, desires on his heart. One is same-sex attraction, and the other is he wants to crush people. Which one is he going to elevate, and which one is he going to suppress? He's probably going to elevate same-sex attraction because he'll be applauded for that, and he is going to suppress that toxic masculinity about crushing people because that's not culturally acceptable anymore. And so Keller's point is, you know, you think you're following your heart. You're not really following your heart. You're still taking cues from the culture as to what is acceptable and what isn't. And he said, what you do on social media when you go from, say, being a Christian to, say, being trans, you're just you're just uh, changing cheerleaders. You're going from Christians who will cheer you on as a Christian to now the LGBTQ community cheering you on because now you've joined them. And maybe I don't know if now is a good time to talk about this, Natasha, but um, there's actually a bit of a civil war inside the LGBTQ community. You want to talk about that now or? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Here's the problem. It's not really a community because if the T's get their way, that there are no fixed genders, then the L's, the G's, and the B's don't exist. Because if there are no fixed genders, how can you be lesbian, gay, or bisexual? You can't. Also, the feminists are not happy with the T's. Because if the T's are right that there are no fixed genders, that means there are no women. And if there are no women, then there are no women's rights. This is why somebody like J.K. Rowling, who wrote, of course, the Harry Potter series, who is probably politically liberal. But even despite that, she said, I'm sorry, you trans people who are coming forth with this trans ideology, you're erasing women. I can't stand for that. And despite the fact that even people in some of her movies have uh, have come out against her, she's standing strong. And is it an interesting, Natasha? You have people like J.K. Rowling. You have people like Richard Dawkins. You have people like Bill Maher. You have people like Douglas Murray and Dave Rubin. The last two identify as gay. All of these people are speaking out against this trans ideology because they know how harmful it is. And yet many Christian pastors are silent on the issue. Why does J.K. Rowling, Richard Dawkins, Dave Rubin, and uh, Bill Maher and and, uh, several others People who are considered atheists or secularists, why are they coming out against this? And Christians and Christian pastors are silent. I think that's 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 really a stain on our church. Now, there are people that do stand up like you do and Lisa Childers and and uh, some pastors like Jack Hibbs and uh, Gary Hambrick out uh, Hambrick out there in uh, in Loudoun County uh, at uh, Cornerstone Chapel and others. They will stand up. Rob McCoy. Uh, I'm thinking of a handful of people I can think of, but most pastors are silent. It's sad. 
It is sad. And that was actually one of the questions that someone submitted online uh, that they wanted us to talk about is how do we get more pastors to talk about this? So I definitely want to go deeper on that when we take listener questions at the end. So let's definitely come back on that one. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right on the whole queer theory thing. If you study queer theory, it's all about getting rid of the gender binary. Mm -hmm. It's all about saying, like I said earlier, that, you know, gender and sexuality are just social constructs. So if they don't actually exist, then how can you switch genders? This does not all work together. It's not consistent. So you do have these wars that are going on within the community itself. So it's it's a fascinating thing to watch. But let me piggyback on something you just said, because that's important, because on one hand, the transgender people are saying that there are no fixed genders, that it's completely fluid. On the other hand, they have to unwittingly admit there are fixed genders or presume there are fixed genders. Because if there are no fixed genders, transgenderism would be impossible. Look, if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman is to know I have this mismatch between my psychology and my biology. If I had no idea of what a man was or what a woman was, gender dysphoria would be impossible. Secondly, if I want to make the so-called transition from being a man to being a woman, which, which actually biologically is impossible, but if I want to try it again... I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman is to try and make the transition. If those genders didn't exist, transgenderism would be impossible. And nobody would, 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 would feel any desire to transition because, because if, if, if I didn't know what a man or a woman was, why, where, where am I going from and where am I going to? And this is why Matt Walsh's little biography, or little biography, little documentary called What is a Woman? That's what I was just thinking of. <laughs> they had, had so many people flummoxed. Did you see the one lady in there he was interviewing Natasha when he said, what is a woman? And she said, I wouldn't know I'm not a woman. All right, now let's stop right there. <laughs> she said, I wouldn't know I'm not a woman. Now for her to say she wouldn't know she's not a woman, she has to know what a woman is to say right. that. Right. right. In order to say, because every negation applies an affirmation. If I say I'm not an elephant, I have to know what an elephant is to say I'm not an elephant. Right. Right. And the same thing is true with women. So, I mean, this is just totally logically uh, vacuous and self-defeating. And yet nobody wants to admit that. Well, I think that's why it's helpful to understand kind of the underlying theory behind it. It's not just an academic exercise to say, oh, by the way, here's what critical theory is. Here's what queer theory says. This is why no one wants to say what a woman is, because they recognize that they're supposed to play along with the idea that there's no gender binary, that it's all a social construct. They understand that. They know enough about the theories that underlie all this. And so if they know that there's not supposed to be any fixed idea of it, if someone comes along and asks them to define it, well, they know that they can't because if they do define it in any way, shape or form, they're going against the theory that underlies the entire movement. That's right. So this is why people won't answer that question. What is a woman? It's not because they're just not sure exactly how to say it. It's that they realize they can't say anything. They cannot give a definition or else they go against the entire underpinnings of the movement. Yeah, it's self-contradictory. You can't have it both ways. Either there are fixed genders or they're not. And they want to they want to say both are true. Actually, they want to say the second is true, that there are no fixed genders, but they have to presume fixed genders in order for transgenderism to even exist or be possible. Right. Exactly. 
So let, let's jump back to talking about the transitions yeah. here to kind of walk people through this. So mm -hmm. we talked about the social transition. So, you know, this is where you might hear about something like a chest binder, which teen girls will purchase online. They have all kinds of different places to get this and it will press their breasts down so that they can look more masculine. So you're not doing any kind of medical things here. You're not doing any kind of surgical things. You are just presenting yourself differently, changing your name, asking for different pronouns, that kind of thing, that kind of thing. But the next level up from that, that people go to would be puberty blockers. We hear about puberty blockers in the media all the time, but let's make sure everyone understands what this means. So these are basically drugs that are given to kids that uh, they're hormones that develop masculine or feminine features in growing kids. And so you're blocking that process. And the idea behind that is that we don't want quote unquote trauma to kids who would be developing body parts congruent with their biological sex because they don't feel like those are the right body parts that they should have. The party line everywhere on this, as you know, is that it's totally safe and reversible. What did you find in your research? Yeah, well, actually, um, at the time of the writing, well, let me, let me back up. In May of, no, sorry, this was the end of March, 2022, President Biden came out on Trans Visibility Day and basically said, uh, how brave these people are, you know, we're for you and all this. And at the same time, that same day, um, an organization within the HHS, Health and Human Services, his administration released a memo that basically said that you as a parent need to affirm your child in what is known as gender affirming care, even if they're three years old. If you have a three year old son who thinks he's a girl, if you don't affirm that child, basically the government said, they were going to come out and take that child from you, potentially. And in this statement, they said there's no scientific evidence that any of this is harmful. Well, back then when they said it, that may have been true because there were no scientific studies on children that we would have administered because this, this just started happening 10 minutes ago. But since then, we've discovered it is very harmful. In fact, there are gender clinics in the UK that started before uh, the United States gender clinics that are now closing, Natasha, and I document this in Correct, Not Politically Correct, because uh, the damage to the kids is so great. I mean, kids that take these, well, there's, there's two aspects to this. There's, there's puberty blockers, which arrest, supposedly arrest puberty, and then there's cross-sex hormones which try and give the kid the hormones of the opposite sex. Now, one of the problems with puberty blockers, one of them, uh, I believe, is called Lupron, which is a drug we used to give to chemically castrate sex offenders. And that drug is also used, in fact, I have a friend who has prostate cancer. He's taking that drug because it takes all the t t testosterone out of, out of his body. That's what that drug does. The problem is the side effects are osteoporosis, are uh, weak uh, uh, heart problems. There's there's side effects, in other words. In fact, I've I, I've heard that um, or I've seen some have said that these young girls that have taken this now and young boys that have taken it have have the bones of like old people because they've taken this drug and it's not reversible. You can't go back on it. So the idea that you can just stop puberty and then pick it up sometime later uh, isn't borne out by the evidence. You're doing damage to these young people. 
And by the way, why would you want to do this when 80% of young people who experience so-called gender dysphoria prior to 18 grow out of it by the time they're 18? In other words, they resort back to what they really are biologically. So why would anybody try and take young people down a road that is going to lead to certain medical problems, probably sterilization for a lifetime, for a problem that's likely to fix itself by itself by the time they're 18. Why would you do that? Why would, why would the Biden administration say we're going to take your kid from you if you don't do this? I mean, that's unconscionable, and that's what's going on. And largely, one of the reasons it's happening, pastors are silent. Christians are silent. Yeah, it, it's amazing to see how many people in the medical establishment are just standing by and affirming this and saying that, oh, it's, you know, it's absolutely final. Nothing's, nothing's bad. Not, it's all reversible. We can just do this. And it's completely experimental, mm -hmm. completely experimental. Just out of curiosity, I had my son uh, use ChatGPT, the AI software that you can ask questions to. I yes. just wanted to see what it would say. I said, hey, put in there and ask it, are puberty blockers safe? And it gave kind of a long thing, but here's just a little snippet from what it said puberty blockers when used under proper medical supervision and by the way who do you think is giving proper medical supervision the people who buy into this have right. been deemed safe and effective for transgender adolescents however like any medication there are potential risks and side effects associated with their use some potential side effects include hot flashes mood swings changes in bone density and alterations in growth patterns however these effects are often reversible upon discontinuation of the medication yeah, there are a lot but, of these that are not reversible. And I like how they make it sound like you're just kind of going through a mini menopause or something. You know, you might have some hot flashes and some mood swings. This is, this is far more dangerous and permanent than they're making it sound. And, you know, some kid goes online. They look to the quote unquote experts. All the medical websites will say the same thing. They ask chat GPT. They go to their online friends everywhere is telling them it's it's safe it's safe it's okay so you know, they're, the they're getting fed to them the convenient fact left out of what you just said from chat uh, gbt right there what's that um they said that it's uh did he say it was medically approved what was the exact phrase there uh if it's used under proper medical supervision okay proper medical supervision lupron has been approved to chemically castrate sex offenders and has been proved to fight prostate cancer. It has never been approved by the FDA as a puberty blocker for, for adolescents. And yet, here they are saying, uh, yeah, it's safe and effective. How? Have the studies been done? No. Of course they haven't. Who's going who's gonna to experiment on kids? Are, are, we, are we back in Nazi Germany right now? But yet the kids that have had it, we know because they... They, they've taken it, have, have all these side effects, all these problems. And yet it's so hard, I think, in the parent's position mm -hmm. to know how to talk to this about a child who's struggling with it because they're going yeah. to assume that the medical professional is a professional. Hey, mom, dad, they know better than you do. All these mm. different medical organizations and, and everywhere they go, all the experts say something different than mom and dad. Who do you think they're going to go with? Mm -hmm. It's it, it, So it's a really challenging thing, I think, as a parent because you have to start teaching your kids. You really can't trust anyone you have to you have to understand everything from a christian worldview perspective and that means that you're going against even the so-called professionals of society well that's a tough sell for parents you just sent me an article just before we did this um that points out 
It's another example of the politicization, easy for me to say, I'm from New Jersey, I can't even pronounce that word. (laughs) We're politicizing medicine, all right? Uh, You just sent me an article about uh, a well-respected researcher who for 35 or so years had been publishing articles on all sorts of different sexual practices in one of the top sexual uh, uh, journals out there. And he and his co-author had their article taken down largely because it did not agree with gender ideology. And as I document in the Correct Not Politically Correct book, the University of Minnesota has decided that their students, their medical students, need to take a oath. Uh, basically, it's a woke oath, oath that say that they're going to adhere to certain woke ideologies and certain treatments uh, rather than the, the science. And so this is, when, when medicine, when politics creeps into medicine, you can't trust anybody anymore. And I think, if, if we can talk about the vaccine for a second, I think it crept in there too. Right. There's a lot of money to be made. And as we go through uh, the rest of this program, we'll see some more of that. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about the money. I think right. that obviously the, the puberty blockers, that's one whole thing. But the final level of transition, the, the biggest level is surgical transition. And this goes beyond the hormones that we've been talking about. And this is when people are actually removing their breasts. You know, we mentioned mm. Chloe Cole. She had a double mastectomy at 15. So she found doctors to remove two breasts when she's 15 years old. People are restructuring their faces. We saw that with Dylan Mulvaney. He very publicly did that to have facial feminization surgery. People are removing their genitals and and so on. And, you know, most children's hospitals are still claiming, they realize that people don't look upon this too fondly at this level. They're still claiming that they're not doing these things with minors, but there have been a whole lot of examples uncovered where that's just not the case. They actually are. It's hard to imagine how medical doctors are actually doing this on minors, not just talking about it, not just supporting an ideology, but they are cutting off body parts that are healthy on kids. You talk in the book about a major reason why, which you just mentioned, and that's the money. Why is this such a money maker for hospitals? I mean, they could they could make money in all kinds of ways. What is specific to transgender surgeries that makes the money? Yeah, nobody ever completely transitions. First of all, it's impossible to, to transition from one uh, sex to another. But for those that try, they have to continually take these hormones to, to continually direct their body in the opposite direction in which it wants to go. And so they have to take this forever. In fact, um, just the surgery itself is, is, is so expensive. And there's no protocol for the, for the surgery. There, people are making this, doctors are basically making up ways to try and transition a man to a woman or a woman to a man. In fact, let me give you a quote from a, a woman that tried to become a man. We have Uh, This in the book, Correct, Not Politically Correct. She now goes by the name Scott Nugent. And here's what she said. She said, during my own transition, I had seven surgeries. I also had a massive pulmonary embolism, a helicopter flight ride, an emergency ambulance ride, a stress-induced heart attack, sepsis, a 17-month recurring infection due to using the wrong skin during a failed operation to give her a an artificial male member 16 rounds of antibiotics three weeks of daily uh, iv antibiotics the loss of all my hair only partially a successful arm reconstructive surgery permanent lung and heart damage a cut bladder insomnia induced hallucinations oh and frequent loss of consciousness due to pain from the hair on the inside of my urethra 
All this led to a form of PTSD that made me a prisoner in my own apartment for a year. Between me and my insurance company, medical expenses expenses exceeded $900,000. And now she continues to be on these, these hormones, and she'll have to stay on those the rest of her life. Cha-ching, she actually said in another quote. It's... There's money behind this, there's ideology behind this, and unfortunately, not a lot of good research for their side that, that, that this is actually good and will help people. And that person, Scott Nugent, she was in the What is a Woman documentary. Yes. For, people might remember her from that very tragic story. You know, because the vast majority of growth and transgender identification comes from adolescent girls, I kind of focused on that here and mm-hmm. what we've been talking about. But there are, of course, still people, and I want to recognize this, both boys and girls, who do struggle with what we might call classic gender dysphoria. They, yes. From a very early age, they really believe that they are in the wrong body. So some people might say that, well, at least those kids should be able to get puberty blockers or surgeries because it's clearly not just a social influence for them. I had a couple of people bring this up online. So what would you say to someone who makes that case that maybe there's something to be said for allowing a transition on those kids and not the ones who are maybe just influenced socially? There's an 80% chance the child will grow out of it. So why would you again go through a surgery that is proven to be uh, experimental Uh, have tremendously negative side effects. And it's not going to solve the problem anyway, Natasha, because the research shows that people that have the so-called gender transition surgery have a suicide rate 19 times higher than the general public 10 years after the surgery. There is a honeymoon period where they initially feel better, but at the 10-year mark, all proverbial hell breaks loose and the suicide rate skyrockets. I don't know why at that point, but somehow maybe they realize they can never be the opposite sex and the surgery uh, created so many other problems for them that they get very suicidal. And remember, um, this is people that decide or people that have true gender dysphoria normally have other mental health conditions as well. In fact, one study found that 62% of kids who claim to be trans already had at least one other mental health issue already existing, whether it's autism, whether it's ADD, whether it's anxiety of some kind. You already mentioned it with Chloe Cole. And uh, when you look at um, sexchangeregret.com, this is a website that was started and is run now by Walt Heyer, who was a, a man that for eight years tried to live as a woman, became a Christian, and transitioned back and now runs sexchangeregret.com. And according to him, he's helped thousands of people who want to detransition. And he says that childhood trauma is normally the trigger that causes people who have true gender dysphoria to say, I'm the opposite sex. He says in almost every case, in fact, he uses always, but let's just be conservative and say in almost every case, when he interviews people, when he asks them, what made you feel? What was the thing that happened that made you feel that you were the opposite sex? They always point to an event, whether it's sexual abuse or anxiety of some kind. Some event occurred in their life. In fact, he even says that some boys who want to become women, uh, they were violated in such a way that they want to rid themselves of the organ that was violated, that psychologically they want to get rid of it. Now, 
what's the best way of dealing with that problem? According to the research, the best way of dealing to that, with that problem is psychiatry, not surgery. You don't treat a mental health condition in most cases with surgery. You treat it with psychiatry. And that's what we need, not so, surgery. So basically, the bottom line on that is that whatever the problem is, there can be lots of sources of the problem, whether it's online, whether it's social contagion, whether it's you know classic gender dysphoria from a young age. No matter what the problem is, this is never the solution because mm -hmm. you can't actually change your sex. You can't change your gender. So it's never going to solve the problem regardless of what the problem itself is. It, you know, I want to dig in a little bit on the suicide statistics because that is a big yeah. one. And you talk mm -hmm. about in, in that in the book, despite all of these hazards that we've been talking about, parents are regularly told that if they don't support their child's transition, the child will commit suicide. I cannot imagine being a parent in that situation. My heart absolutely breaks for families dealing with this. But in story after story, you read the same script from healthcare providers. Support this transition or you will have a dead child. And I have seen many well-meaning Christians online accept this as sort of a general truth that we need to help kids transition whether we think that that's a good thing or not, because if we don't, we're going to have blood on our hands. It's it, This is emotional blackmail, as That's you call it, it in yeah. the book. So share some of those statistics. You, you shared a little bit already, but how, right. how do Christians think about this claim? Well, I think how anybody should think about the claim, and that is what I just said already twice now, that 80% of the kids grow out of it without any kind of cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers or surgery. So just let nature take its course. It's normal to feel odd when you're in puberty. And secondly, uh, even taking kids down that road, as we've already said, is not going to solve the problem. If you have a suicide rate 19 times higher than the general public after the surgery, which, which is higher than it was before the surgery, why would you take young people down that road? Now, look, um, we live in a free country. Uh, I think the state of Tennessee just passed a law that said if you want to go through some sort of gender transition, it should be 26 or after. When you're 26 years of age or after, you can do it. Why did they pick 26? Because the data show that your brain isn't fully, fully developed until 25. So if you're 26 and you still think this is the solution for you, okay, uh, you, can, you can do that. I still, of course, would recommend against it, but uh, it's a free country. But for kids... Now, in fact, they need mental health care. They don't need, they don't need surgery. It doesn't work anyway in most cases. And in, in, in the few cases where people do feel better, maybe long term, that's no reason to go against what the actual data show that in most cases it, it's, it's not good. Uh, in fact, let me go back to what Scott Nugent said, another quote from our book. Uh, she said this. I would not medically transition again. Medical transition has given me permanent heart and lung damage, recurring bacterial infections for life, and a deformed arm. It cut my dating pool by 90% and took years off my lifespan. This decision has cut the time my future grandkids will have me if I meet them at all. So for me, I'm past all the BS. She used the actual word there. I don't have time for it anymore. Medical transition is not for kids. It doesn't fix anything and it's not life-saving. But convincing people it is sure makes a lot of money for companies and doctors, doesn't it? A ton of this is about the money. 
We're talking that if transition, if transgender identification continues its current exponential growth patterns, more than 20% of the population will be trans in 20 years. And that is a ton of money. It's it's heartbreaking because you can we can look at this and we can talk about it from the outside and say that, you know, you don't want to support a kid going through this for that reason. But parents are actually in the thick of this. Having a kid say, I'm going to kill myself if you don't let me transition. It's mm. it's a it's an impossible situation to be in, especially when the medical establishment is saying, yeah, you're you're going to have blood on your hands if you don't do this. I've heard you share some um some questions mm -hmm. that you can kind of use or that you recommend using yeah. with youth and who might be in this situation. That doesn't right. necessarily mean that's going to stop them from threatening these no. things, but I think that they're really helpful to maybe get them thinking a little bit sure. more deeply about it. Can you share some of those questions that sure. you would recommend well, if, to if your child comes to you and says, mom, dad, I'm trans, the number one thing you can't do is freak out. Do not freak out, right? If, if, if your kid comes to you with some problem and you freak out, is that kid ever going to trust you again or come to you again? Oh, man, that really freaked mom. That really freaked dad out. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to them anymore. I think the first thing you want to do is say, well, thank you for telling me. Um, can I ask you a few questions? What do you mean by trans? Just let them see what they say. Um, when did you start feeling this way? Do feelings always tell you the truth? I mean, you can give examples where they don't, right? Should you always follow your feelings? I mean, think about this. If we followed our feelings all the time, none of us would have stable relationships. I mean, just think from, a, from an interest perspective. We could, we could fall in love with, with people we see every day if we let ourselves, right? We, you, can't, you just can't follow your feelings all the time. You've made a commitment to somebody, you need to stay there with them. Uh, if, if you're, even if you're, you know, if you're not uh, married, uh, you just can't just can't go and hang out with everybody and and uh, decide that you're just going to continually play the field. You're never going to hold down a stable relationship. Now, just from a pragmatic perspective, to say nothing of the moral aspects of it, right? You just can't follow your feelings. You, someone gets you mad, you just can't punch them in the face. You know, there, there are all sorts of feelings you get that you just can't follow. And another question you should ask is, do, do your feelings ever change? Well, obviously, yours have changed because a month ago you weren't trans. Now you're trans now. What changed? Do you think your feelings may change again? Did you know that 80% of people in your position uh, grow out of this feeling by the time they're 18? In other words, they go back to their, to their biological sex. So why would you do anything drastic now? Why not just wait until you get a little bit older? It's normal to feel odd. And you might also ask, have you investigated... Any of the data that will tell you what happens when you try and take puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or try and do gender transition surgery? Have you looked into any of that? Because chances are they haven't. And where have you seen uh, the data for this? Or what have you seen online that makes you think this is a good idea? I mean, just keep asking questions and see what they say. Those are great questions because yeah. sometimes, you know, kids don't want to hear it if you're going to lecture to them. But no, if you ask them questions asking. and then you keep drilling into that, it kind of reveals their own mindset about it. And sometimes they can reveal the answer to themselves through those questions. So That's I think right. it's a great strategy. Uh, well, I want to switch gears now and talk about having the transgender conversation as Christians in the public square. I got a lot of questions about these things because these are the claims and the phrases and the questions that 
frequently come up. And I want to help listeners see how to respond to them clearly and succinctly. You're so good at this because you spend so much time on college campuses talking to students. So you hear these all the time and you just know how to answer them immediately. So I'm going to throw a bunch of these out to you. We'll kind of do a rapid fire session here. And I'd love to just hear your best brief reply. And for people listening, Frank covers a lot of these in his book. So you don't need to take notes. Just be sure to get your own copy of the book. But let's just kind of demonstrate this for people. So I'm going to I'm going to play the skeptic here. And I'm going to throw these out at you. So Frank, just because you're assigned a sex at birth, it doesn't mean that's your gender. What do you mean by sex assigned at birth? I'm going to ask that question. And it's those of you who know Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, I'm just using the first question. <laughs> what do you mean by assigned at birth? Well, that's just what the doctors decided. Okay, but do you think when the doctors looked at you when you came out of the womb that they arbitrarily picked a gender? Or did they just observe what they saw? Well, they're picking it based on their best guess. Their best guess, yes. <laughs> Science, right? <laughs> what they can <laughs> see and any blood test they've done, they've done. Obviously, sex is not assigned at birth. Sex is discovered at birth. In fact, quite often now, it's discovered long before birth. You can do all sorts of tests, whether it's ultrasound or amnio, what do they call it? Am I can't remember the name of it. Having a kids and so, ambi yeah, something like that, where they actually take the ambiotic fluid out and they can discover what the baby is. Wait, so are you saying it, that's a human being in there? There's a human being. It's not a squirrel in there. <laughs> this, this is this is a pro-life argument now, right? There's not a right. raccoon in there. There's a human <laughs> being in there. You can discover it at birth. So it's not arbitrary. Uh, it's not assigned at birth. It's discovered at birth. And then if they try and say, well, sex and gender are two completely different things, then I'm going to ask them, okay, what's the definition of sex and what's the definition of gender? And they might say, well, sex is your biology. Okay, so we, we've cleared that up. It's not assigned at birth. Gender is what you think your sex should be. Well, then they're not two completely different things then, are they? Because you're saying that your gender ought to align with your sex, right? If your gender ought to align with your sex, if you have a mismatch between your psychology and your biology, which one of those things can you change? You can't change your biology. You can change your mind. In fact, why, why should, why should, if, if, if I have gender dysphoria, if I think I'm a, if I know I'm a man biologically, but I think I'm a woman, why do I think my body is the problem? Why not think my mind is a problem? Instead of me saying, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, why don't I say I'm a man enveloping a woman's mind? Right? <laughs> right. Then, then I could fix the problem by changing my mind, by getting good mental health care, which is possible. It's not possible to change my biology. It is possible to change my mind. So if, if you just look at it from the other perspective, you can say, oh, and by the way, this is the, 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 the same issue uh, as basically anorexia, right? I mean, if, if your daughter is anorexic, but she thinks she's overweight, you would not affirm her in her anorexia. You would say, honey, your mind is playing tricks on you. You're dangerously underweight. We need to get you nutrition. You would never say, let me get you liposuction. But that's basically what the gender dysphoria folks are saying, is they're saying we must affirm the mental delusion rather than treat the mental delusion. And uh, so you would never do that. I mean, if your daughter said she was a mermaid, you wouldn't take her off the coast and drop her in the ocean, right? You would say, honey... Your mind is playing tricks on you. I want to get you the right care for this. You're not a mermaid. You, 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 just because you think you're a mermaid doesn't mean you are. 
Uh, so we're going to get you some help for this. And the same thing is true with the able, uh, the able-bodied issue. You may have heard some people uh, claim that uh, they're they're disabled in their mind, but physically they're fine, and they want to have limbs cut off. What doctor is going to say, you know, if you you really think you're disabled, let me take that right arm from you? Yeah. Who's going to do that? But that's what we're doing with sexual organs. Why are we doing it with sexual organs? Is sex the new religion? Oh, it is. I forgot. <laughs> Have to remind yourself there, right? Okay, mm-hmm. here's another one. Trans rights are human rights. Question. What are trans rights and where do rights come from? Because if there's no God, there are no rights. There's not only no trans rights, there's no human rights if there's no God. There's not only no right to abortion, there's no right to life. There's not only no right to same-sex marriage, there's no right to natural marriage. If there, are, if there is no God, there are no rights, one way or the other, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. So governments don't give you rights. Governments are supposed to secure your rights according to the Declaration of Independence. Our rights come from our creator, as the Declaration says. Otherwise, it's just one person's opinion against another. So I'm going to ask them, by what basis are you saying you have a right to anything? Forget about trans or non-trans. What what basis do you have a right to anything? And uh, the answer is you don't have a right to anything unless God exists. Now, the question is, if God exists, then you do have rights. Do you think he wants you to mutilate perfectly healthy sex organs? What evidence do you have for that? And if people are kind of fuzzy on the whole notion of, of rights and where do we get rights, how do we ground rights, these things, you have an earlier book uh, called Legislating Morality. What what year is this? It's been a while. Oh, well, it was originally written in 98. <laughs> yeah, that's the first book Dr. Geisler and I wrote. And it's all about how uh, people are always trying to legislate morality. The only question is whose morality will we legislate? And I treat that a little bit, a little bit in the new book, Correct Not Politically Correct. Uh, so you don't have to go all the way back to legislating morality unless you want a real robust treatment of it. It's, a, it, it's to... a great book. I actually just read it this weekend. I hadn't read it before. I, oh, I wow. read it and I thought it was really excellent uh, just laying out the basics of this because these kind of books about political philosophy kind of tend to go in extreme directions. And this was mm-hmm. a very understandable, succinct resource for that, much like correct, not politically correct. So if you want more about rights and our Constitution and those kinds of questions, legislating morality is a great resource on that. Here's another one. And by the way, this This isn't just something that people throw out on social media. This is said all the time in the news, including the AP, which used to be sort of the, you know, the exemplar of objective reporting. And of course, it's not at all anymore. Mm. But they claim that anything that you do that's, uh, you know, supposedly against transgender people is because you want to erase trans people. Frank, are you erasing trans people? If somebody says that to you, what do you say? What do you mean by that? What do you mean erase <laughs> trans people? What does that even mean? And I might ask, if I wanted to erase... You don't want ra- them to exist. I, I think that's what they're usually saying. You just don't want us to exist. You want us to just go away. So well, how do no, you... I, I would say this. If I wanted to erase anorexia, would you be against that? I want to erase the condition. I want to erase the disease. I don't want to erase the person. I want to save the person. That's, that's the purpose of this. No one wants to erase anorexics. We want to help anorexics by erasing anorexia. Same thing is true when it comes to transgenderism. We don't want to erase these people. We want to save them. We want to help them. Because the way the culture's pushing them is documented not to help them. So why would we, why would we do that? And especially, again, as we said earlier, if you're an adult, 
We live in a free country. We, why we would recommend against it, why we would think God would be against it, but it's a free country. If you want to go down that road as an adult, okay. But why is this being pushed on children when all the data show this is not the way to go? Why? There's something else going on here. And, you know, Douglas Murray, uh, I don't know if, yeah, I know you know who Douglas is, uh, Natasha. I don't know if your audience has heard of him, but he wrote the book, The Madness of Crowds, maybe four or five years ago, and he identifies as gay, but generally, he's from the UK, but he's generally conservative on, on other issues. And he, I saw him recently on a podcast somewhere, and he said, you know that, that the um, support for same-sex marriage in America has waned recently. And he said the reason for this is, is because it's lumped in with the transgender movement. And when the transgender movement and some in the LGBT community as well, the LGB, when they start going after children, people start saying, all right, I was all for live and let live. You want to get married, live happily ever after, go right ahead. But you start coming after my kids with this stuff, we've got a problem. And so now everyone's getting lumped in, even though there are people like Douglas Murray, like Dave Rubin, who identify as gay and are going, this isn't us. We're not for this. Stop this. Stop coming after the children. That's what they're doing. Let's take a few related to people bringing up God in the conversation or Mm -hmm. the Bible. Sometimes people say, hey, trans people deserve respect because they're made in the image of God. And in this case, that is from President Biden, something he said on Trans Visibility Day, as you pointed out in the book. What do you say? They deserve respect because they're made in the image of God. Yeah, true. They, they deserve respect because they are persons made in the image of God, not because they have a mismatch between their psychology and biology, right? We don't respect, we, we don't respect people because they have a mental condition. We respect people because they are made in the image of God. Everybody is, deserves respect made, because they're made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean everything they do or every condition they have is good. I mean, I do things that are wrong. I may have conditions that are that are. Uh, defects but that's not why i'm valuable or why anyone's valuable it's because they are made in the image of god so this is when people are conflating uh, a condition they have or an identity they take with them as a person your identity my identity is in our creator if there is no creator we're nothing but overgrown germs basically and there is no ultimate meaning or purpose to life when we all die we're just going to become worm food it's over what's the point Only if God exists and there is an eternity, does this have any ultimate meaning? And do we have any ultimate value? What's amazing is that for him to say that people deserve respect because they're made in the image of God requires knowledge of the Bible. Because if there's no revelation Mm -hmm. of God, we wouldn't know that we're made in the image of God. So he's referring to the Bible, to God's theoretical revelation, to say that everyone deserves this respect because of who we are in him. And yet it's completely throwing out what the rest of the Bible says. Well, the next verse Right, he stopped in 127. Mid-verse. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he exactly. In mid-verse, Natasha. God made the male and female. <laughs> That's right. And yet, you know, it, we're, we're kind of laughing about this. but And yet, I think that the confusion on this comes from progressive Christians. Because I have seen, I follow several progressive pages just to kind of see what they're saying. And they will always post this kind of stuff that it, it just conflates issues about, you know, respecting the person and loving the person as mm-hmm. if that implies the endorsement or approval. It seems like a simple issue. It, it really seems like we, I, I, you know, 
we keep coming back to the same thing. The love doesn't mean approval, but yet right. progressive Christians really mire the issue, I think, because of that. Well, Natasha, it goes back. I love your book, Faithfully Different. I have it here on my shelf right here next to me. I'm trying to find it. I must have put it in another place. You probably have a copy there. I just wanted to show everybody it. But your book, <laughs> Faithfully Different, actually lays all this out when you go through those four things that the secular mindset believes, right? Believe that, you know, happiness is the ultimate goal, feelings are the ultimate God, judgment's the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guess. And uh, look, how can, we, how can we criticize people if they're following their feelings? And how can we judge them then if they're following their feelings? They just want happiness. And look, we don't know if God exists or not, so it's wrong to judge anyway. And if God does exist, didn't he say don't judge? You know, all that stuff. Yeah. Right? And uh, this, is, this whole movement is perfectly explained by your book, Faithfully Different. And so if people really want to get a macro view of this, and not just on this issue, but on issues in general, just get Faithfully Different. Yeah, it, it, it is very much the secular mindset and progressive Christianity, as I make the case in that book, is really just mm -hmm. secularized Christianity. So I think the progressive Christians are doing everyone a disservice by putting these things out because then people say, oh, look at these Christians. They're, you know, they're happy. They they love everyone. They respect everyone. And, and it just makes it all the more difficult to have the conversations in culture. A couple of things that I've seen on similar progressive pages, um, people will just say, hey, God made them the way they are. They wouldn't be trans if God didn't make them that way. How do you respond to that? Well, apply that to any mental condition. If somebody had anorexia, does that mean we ought not treat them? What if they had schizophrenia or ADD or autism or um, what's that? Borderline personality disorder. That's relatively new on the scene, but people that have that can be, or bipolar disease, right? Uh, God made them that way, so don't treat them at all. Just affirm them in that. No, we would never say we would never say that about any other mental problem. We would say these people need good mental health care. And we wouldn't give them lobotomies, right? We wouldn't do surgery on them in most cases. We would say they need counseling, they may need certain medications to help uh, bring them back to stability, but we wouldn't do surgery to cut off perfectly healthy organs. And yet that's what appears to be happen, happening with, with the, the whole movement, the whole transgender movement here. I mean, we live in a fallen world. We all have de defects. We all have things that, that don't work completely correctly, completely right. And we don't say, well, God just made us that way, so we're not going to try and treat it at all. No, God also gave us a mind and gave us people who, who have the ability to uh, become medical doctors to help us if they're medical profession hasn't gone completely the way of politics, which unfortunately in many cases it has. With so many of these examples, like you're saying, if you just take the logic to the extreme and you have a test case there, that's how you can see what the problem is with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, God made them the way they are. Well, can you say that about 
a murderer, for example. Mm. God mm -hmm. made them that way. He, you know, they wanted to go and kill someone and, you know, they're a rapist, but, you know, they wouldn't be a rapist if God didn't make them that way. <laughs> Just take the logic to the mm -hmm. extreme and then mm -hmm. you can, and then you can kind of start to see through it. And that's, I think that's the problem you see in so many of these progressive Christian posts and the way that they think. It, they never take that logic to the next step to see where it goes. No. So that's, I think that's the trick of dealing with those kinds of claims. Well, I, you know, I asked online in anticipation of doing this interview, what questions do you guys have for mm. Frank? And I got a ton of questions. We cannot possibly get through all of them. I've tried to kind of group them and summarize them, but I want to go through as many as we can get to here um, that, that people had and so many emailed stories also. So thank you to everyone who sent in their stories. A lot of them are very heartbreaking and I hope that we can get a little bit of clarity around some of those things. So in this, you know, in this first grouping of questions, these are kind of about personal interactions with family and friends. So someone asked, how do I accept the fact that my young adult daughter identifies as male? She's been taking hormone drugs and has had top surgery. My wife and I are cross Christ followers and it breaks our heart and kind of along the same vein can maybe we can answer these together. Someone said, for the parents of transgender adult children, what is the best way to keep the relationship open without compromising biblical principles like gender pronouns and, and names? So we've been talking a lot about adolescence, but heard from quite a few people who have adult children dealing with this. How, how do they relate to them? Yeah, that is a very difficult question because there's no guaranteed answer that's going to give you the outcome you want. Uh, yeah. it's, you can't look, I can hardly control what I do. I can't control what other people do. Right. So if, if I ask a question or make a statement, I don't know how the other person's going to react. All I can do is in the most winsome way possible and the most genteel way possible, speak the truth. We don't want to live by lies. So there are some questions I think you can ask people. Uh, another one comes from Greg's book, Tactics, is do you consider yourself a tolerant person? Right? That's a good question to ask anybody on a topic that you know is, is you're going to have some disagreement on because they're probably going to have to say yes. And then you can say, great, because if I have an opinion different than yours, you'll tolerate it then, right? See, you, you've, you've, kind of, you've kind of set the conversation up well, so... If they get all mad at you, they're going to realize they just violated what they said they were, and that was tolerant. <laughs> they're right. not really tolerant. And then you have to use the questions, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, and uh, if they say, well, you have to use my pronouns, um, I would say, in addition to ask, do you consider yourself a tolerant person? I would say, do you think it's ever right to try and force people to violate their conscience? And I think most people would reasonably say, no, it's not right to do that. Then you can say, well, great. So please don't ask me to violate mine. Um, I want to treat you with respect, but that doesn't mean I should lie to you or I should tell you something that isn't true. Uh, I want what's best for you. And in fact, you could even ask the question this way. You could say, if you want to preempt the conversation, you might say, Hey, Natasha, uh, if you thought I was going down a road that would be harmful to me and others, would you love me enough to tell me? And you, what are you going to say? Well, of course. Do you mind if I do that with you right now? 
and just open it up that way. And then ask the questions we talked about earlier. Have you really looked into the long-term effects of trying to do this? Should you always follow your feelings? Your feelings sometimes not tell you the truth? Do your feelings ever change? I mean, obviously your feelings have changed. You, you weren't trans, you know, last year. Now you are. Why? What triggered that? All the questions we went through earlier. And, and just ask, you know, is, um, why is it? Here's another question. Why is it that you have certain conditions for our relationship and I don't have any? I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not asking you to, I'm not asking you to call me by something I'm not. Why do you put conditions on our relationship? Other than we should treat one another with respect. We'll have those conditions. We get that. But why, why do you have these special conditions that everybody needs to, everybody needs to adhere to or you won't have a relationship with them? Doesn't that come across to you as a little bit of my way or the highway? A little bit, you must see it my way or else? How is that tolerant, inclusive, and diverse? Why would you exclude our relationship um, based on, and not include me, because I have a diverse view, a view different from yours? I thought this was all about tolerance and inclusion and diversity, but it appears that the position you have is that everybody must agree with you. Why? Why is that? Now, we all know why it is, because... People who are in a fragile mental state need to have affirmation. If they don't get affirmation, they feel that they're going to crumble. They feel there's, there's, there's going to be a problem. That's why they need mental health care. And as I mentioned earlier, at least two, about two-thirds of the people that have this true condition, not just the rapid-onset gender dysphoria, um, have other mental health conditions. So... You can be as reasonable and as logical as possible. It doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere. That's all you can do, yeah. though, right? You can just you speak the truth and leave the results to God. I'm reminded of what um, Thomas Sowell said. He's, and, of course, you know, he, I don't even know if Thomas Sowell is a Christian, but he said, when you tell people what they need to hear, you're helping them. When you tell people what they want to hear, you're helping yourself. And why don't we tell people what they really need to hear? Because we don't want to take the blowback we're going to get from them. And we're not, we're not really loving them when we do that. We're, we're protecting ourselves rather than trying to help the other person. That's a powerful quote. I mm -hmm. remember, I think you had that in your book, didn't you? Yeah. The soul quote? Yeah. It's in there. That yeah, stood the out to me quote. also. Yeah. And I, I think parents need to really hear what you said there about, you know, you can be as reasonable and logical as possible and asking all these great questions that you're giving. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to say, huh, you know, I guess I guess my parents are right. We can all just be happy with this. And, and I say that because I think a lot of parents have lost the connection with their kids who have transitioned. I heard several of those stories just in the last 24 hours as I asked for people to, to email me. And it's not necessarily because you did something wrong. 
It's not necessarily mm. because you didn't ask the right questions or you just didn't quite handle it the right way. I think you have to kind of take that guilt off of yourself. And obviously, if there's something that you can pinpoint that you did do wrong, then you follow up on that. But I, I, some of this, too, is that depending on the community that people are in when they're transitioning, whether that's an online community or the counseling that they're getting, you have to understand that they're being told you don't just have a different view that they that there should be tolerance around, but you're evil. It goes back to the oppressor and evil yes. kind of paradigm that we talked yes. about earlier. So especially if they're younger adults, maybe they just came out of college. I've experienced this personally. If they are on early 20s, they're probably just coming out of that kind of indoctrination in terms of like the critical theory and you need to get rid of the people around you in your life who are toxic and by toxic, they didn't necessarily do anything. They just have beliefs that are different than yours. So they're being counseled in a lot of cases to let go of you. And that's that's the hardest thing to hear. But I think that parents need to know that, that in a lot of cases, it's not just your child and you having this conversation. They are being actively counseled by friends and communities, sometimes a progressive Christian church even, to be hostile to you and to cut mm -hmm. you off from their life. So there, there are a lot of factors that go into that, unfortunately. You know, Natasha, one other thing that my first pastor told me that he would tell his kids, I think is very wise, he would say to his kids, there's nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you. Now, that presupposes what love is, right? Love, as we mentioned earlier briefly, does not require approval, right? If it did, you couldn't be a loving parent if you ever told your kid no about something, right? I mean, if, if you're a parent and you, and you approve of everything your 13-year-old wants to do, are you a loving? No, you're unloving, right? You need to stand in the way of evil. And in the passage that everyone reads at their wedding but nobody obeys, Paul says, love always protects. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love always perseveres. Perseveres, which means you don't give in to what you know is false and unloving. You persevere. So through a lot of prayer and a lot of perseverance, parents, just hang on. Do the best that you can and ask the right questions. Don't get emotional. Try and stay even keeled and just say, there's nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you. And if, 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 if you thought I was going down a road that was harmful to me or harmful to others, would you love me enough to tell me? I hope so. That's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's good. Uh, several people asked about they don't necessarily have a transgender identifying child, but they want to know how do you talk to your kids, both young kids and older kids, about this when their friends or other people they know are transitioning? How do you recommend talking to kids? Maybe take both ask, the young and the old. Yeah, you ask a lot of questions. Just, you know, oh, Johnny now claims to be Susie. You know? How do you think he came to, to know this or what? Is he trusting his feelings? Did his feelings change? Do feelings ever change? Do feelings always tell you the truth? What do you think the future for Johnny is if he goes down this path? Have you, have you, have you looked at the, the data that show that this is a very dangerous path and a path that's going to lead to a lot of negative side effects? Um, I mean, I would just talk about it the same way that uh, you would talk about to someone who is claiming to be trans, just in a very calm way and say, have you really looked into this? Now, they may get all upset, they may run out of the room, but again, you can't control what they do, you can only control what you do. 
And so just ask the right questions. In fact, um, I was talking to Sam Albury. Uh, this is a slightly different topic, but Sam Albury, the same sex attracted man who lives a chaste life, who is a speaker and a writer, uh, said that um, he was talking uh, about a pastor who had befriended two lesbian women who were living together. And he felt so convicted to try and help these lesbian women that he actually built an addition on his house to add a room to his house and so they could come live with him in separate rooms. And they became Christians and came and lived in his house. And Sam said, at one point, he, Sam, asked these two former lesbian lovers, um, how's your relationship now? Do you miss the relationship you had before? And they both basically said, oh, we're much closer now as sisters in Christ than we ever were as lesbian <laughs> lovers, Right. I mean, God can break through. The Holy Spirit can break through with enough prayer and enough perseverance. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen, but that's that's the hope we have, right? Yeah, that's a that's a great story. Yeah. Um, it, in terms of the kids, one thing that I always tell people, especially with young kids, that I think is is helpful when you kind of try to give them the biblical basics of this. You know, God mm. made two genders, mm. male and female. Actually, open the Bible. I mean, it sounds so basic, but open the Bible and show them in the Bible, Genesis sure. one twenty seven. Go and say, mm -hmm. hey, this is what God has said, so that they mm -hmm. start to see. This is where we go to know what's true. Yes. And I think that says so much. It's just not mom and dad saying this, but hey, let's see what God has already told us. And then you can show them that and explain because we live in a fallen world. Boys sometimes think that they're girls. Girls sometimes think that they're boys. There are a lot of complex reasons why that happens sometimes, but it's important that as Christians, we love people no matter what they struggle with. And it's important that because we, lie, we love them, we don't lie to them and tell them that they're right about being something they're not. So I think those are kind of some of the key points that, that I would emphasize with young kids. And then also, I know some people were asking, hey, how do you explain to your kids why some people celebrate this? Mm. You know, where they're seeing flags on their next door neighbor's house, someone said, and their child likes the look of the flag. You know, it's pretty and this is neat and they see this in the stores. You know, how do you explain the celebration aspect? And, and I, I think that's important to acknowledge, too, because it's it's a really good opportunity to share with your kids. Look, not everyone believes what God has said. That's right. And so for different reasons, people will rebel against that and they will celebrate things that aren't actually good. And so we have to be really careful as Christians to know what God says in this book, in the Bible, in his word, so that we know whether this is something good to celebrate or something we should never celebrate. So I think that that makes a great conversation starter with your kids actually actually and also the natural law perspective which is the perspective i take in the book correct not politically correct i actually don't quote bible verses in the book as you know it's written more for people who uh, could be christians but also people who are not christians who are just going yeah how do i think about this issue from a natural law perspective we know there are only two genders because you can only produce one of two things you can only produce either a sperm or an egg there's no third category Anybody that can't produce a sperm or an egg, that would be an incapacity, not a third capacity. So just from natural law, just from which comes from God as well, just from the natural design of the body, 
and the complementarianism of the man and the woman coming together to procreate and bring forth the next generation, we know that there are only two genders. And the intersex thing doesn't help them either. The intersex issue is a, a situation where you might have uh, ambiguous genitalia, but if you do certain tests, you can figure out exactly what the uh, person is, and the person can then make a decision in which direction they would like to go. But that's not the same as what's going on in our culture now. In our culture, we're having people cutting off perfectly healthy sex organs to try and do the impossible, to try and become the other gender, which is which is impossible. You can't do it. Yeah, it's yeah, it the it's a it's a very difficult thing to explain i think mm -hmm. for especially in the child conversation but i think that when we stick with the basics and then we as the kids grow up then they can understand some of those uh, more of the intricacies around it some of the things that we've talked about in this episode um you know someone said i've heard some say that it would be lying to use a pronoun that isn't in line with their gender or sex and i agree so we've talked a, a bit about yes. that today but they go on to say something along the lines of well a name's just a name call them whatever name they want and i've heard a lot of people say this too but for a transgender person changing their name this is part of their identity this is part of their attempt at a new gender identity so it means something to them if it holds value as part of a person's identity, then should we or should we not call a transgender person by their new name? And Frank, I gotta say that this is something that I've kind of struggled with in my own head because I've heard, you know, fellow apologists, for example, kind of make that distinction between the pronoun and the name. And uh, it kind of seems like those travel together for me because it's the intent behind it. Yes, yeah. the pronoun refers to an objective basis in, you know, in reality with their sex. But at the same time, even though the name can go either way, it's still the intent behind it. So yeah. wh what do you think about that kind of distinction? Yeah, I, I agree. Make? That's what makes it all the more difficult. But notice who's putting the difficulty in the relationship. It's not us, right? It's not people who... Are, are not claiming, or it's, it's not people who, uh, who, are, who are not the folks that are claiming to be a man and a woman. It's the people that are trying to transition. They're the ones that are putting all these conditions on other people. And uh, so I agree. You know, if, you, if you've never met the person before and you come to work and the person looks like a man and he says, my name is Ed, even though Ed's really a woman, you might not even know, okay, I'm going to call you Ed, right? You never knew him before, but if it's your daughter or it's your son, and now they go by a different name, that's a real struggle. I think I agree with you. I think saying, you know, using their new name is affirming that they are this new gender when they're really not. They're not, they're not a new gender. And, and that that's, that's even makes it more difficult. And unfortunately, it's like asking us now to unscramble eggs. Yeah. Right. You, you really, <laughs> we're so far away from the truth now that it makes everything a confrontation. And yeah. what happens then? It's really hard when when people are, in, are intent on living a certain way, and we're intent on telling them the truth for their own benefit. It's really hard to meet in the middle when there is no middle. 
you you started to mention a workplace question. I had several people who sent in some of these, so I want to hit a couple of them. Again, we can't get to all of them. Um, this is a common one that Christians are facing. Should Christian teachers use a student's new gender-specific name and their pronouns? Very similar issue, but now you're talking about a public workplace where you're going to get all kinds of pushback. Similarly, along the same line, somebody said, we recently had a colleague at my workplace in higher education share an article stating that failing to use a student's preferred pronouns, even by accident could be considered harassment and a title nine violation is this the case so can you give us some background on teachers in the classroom what's required yeah. what's legal this is something i i actually don't know the the rules yeah, about. I'm, I'm not sure uh given the recent supreme court decision regarding same-sex wedding cakes and all this um i think the supreme court would side with the christian saying that you're causing me to violate my conscience and my religious beliefs, and that's a violation of the First Amendment. So I would say, if I had to guess, well, I don't know what the court will do, but I think the, I think the, the Constitution protects our ability to speak the truth on these issues. That doesn't mean you won't get fired. It doesn't mean you won't need to call ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, <laughs> to help you when you are fired. Uh, but... I think it's the side of conscience, the side of the Constitution to say, no, we're not going to be forced to say anything against our deeply held uh, beliefs, whether they be religious or not, actually. And this, by the way, this is what catapulted Jordan Peterson to, to basic uh, fame, because he said, I don't care what the Canadian government says, the University of Toronto says, I'm not going to call people by whatever they want because you told me to. I might choose on my own volition to do so, but not because the government gets to be the uh, speech police. Sorry. And in a situation when it's you have a public school, that's the government being the speech police. And I, I wouldn't think it would stand. Now, when it comes to a private company, that might be a different story. I have the same, I had the same problem. I explain it in uh, correct, not politically correct, because I was fired in 2011 from both Cisco and Bank of America, because I had written the first edition of that book, correct, not politically correct, back in 2008. And when they discovered that I didn't agree with same-sex marriage, they fired me the same day. And I tell the story as to what happened after that, because I wrote the, the, the head of Cisco at the time, his name was John Chambers, and he was on the elect McCain Commission in 2008 in California. And McCain, a veteran of the United States Navy, so was I. So I wrote, sent, I wrote uh, John Chambers, the CEO of Cisco, and I told him what happened to me, that I was fired for my position on same-sex marriage from his own company. And I said, I'm a veteran of the United States Navy, too, and I, 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 I respect your... Uh, your support for Senator John McCain in the last presidential election. That's when McCain ran against Obama. And I said, are you aware that Senator McCain holds the same position on same-sex marriage that I do? Are you qualified to be working at Cisco? And I got a call the next day from an attorney. The attorney said, what do you want? And I said, well, I don't really want anything other than you called the dogs off other Christians. Look, I wasn't an employee. I was a vendor. He could fire me because he didn't like the color of my shirt, right? But don't tell me you're inclusive and tolerant and diverse and then firing me in the name of inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, because how come I wasn't included, tolerated for holding a diverse view? So they said, well, we'll set you up with a, uh, uh, a lady who heads the inclusion, tolerance, and diversity division here, and you can talk to her. So I had this conversation with her. Me and Mike Adams did via, via the telephone. And uh, I kept asking her questions like, and here are questions you can ask people. What does tolerance mean? 
What does inclusion mean? What does diversity mean? What does equity mean? What does justice mean? And then see what they say. This lady couldn't answer any of the questions, Natasha, because there was no answer. Because inclusion, tolerance, and diversity does not mean to corporate elites what it means to what the dictionary definition is. Right. It doesn't mean inclusion. It means if you don't see it our way, we're going to hurt you. It doesn't mean tolerance. It means if you don't see it our way, we're going to hurt you. It doesn't mean diversity. If you don't have the same views we have, we're going to hurt you. So just ask the questions. And I, if I had the opportunity again, if I was employed at one of those companies, I would ask for a meeting with the HR director and I would just say, hey, I'd like to ask some questions to get some clarification about our company policies. And let me be clear, I'm not questioning anyone's intentions here. I think everyone's intentions are good with these policies. I'm just concerned that there may be some unforeseen or unintended consequences. And then ask questions like, does the company value tolerance? What does tolerance mean? What does inclusion mean? What does diversity mean? What does equity mean? What does justice mean? Do we all have to have the same political, religious, or moral beliefs to work here? If they say yes, they just violated the United States Constitution or the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And you would have a lawsuit on your hands if they say, yes, you have to have all the same. Well, you know, why, why are you saying that we all have to adhere to these religious moral beliefs? Why does the company think it has the medical expertise to order employees to encourage people to stay in their state of gender dysphoria? Why do you think that's a good thing to give medical advice? Now, you may say all this and get fired. I'm just saying, yeah. if, if you write all this out and talk to them, because none of this is going to stop until Christians and other people of common sense stand up and say, we've had enough of this. You, you, you can't impose this. And in the book, Correct Not Politically Correct, I have a column that I originally wrote and published publicly. Now it's in the book. It's called Sex at Work. And my question is, are we supposed to have sex at work? By the way, do not Google sex at work. It'll take you right to Harvey Weinstein's website. Okay. Just... Just just go to our website, crossexamine.org, and type in sex at work. You'll find the article. And my question is, Natasha, why is corporate America talking about sex at work? What does it have to do with providing a product or a service? Zero. As long as we treat one another with kindness and respect, regardless of whether or not we believe on what we do in bed, why should we even be talking about this? What does it have to do with workplace productivity? Nothing. So why are we talking about it? Just ask them, why, why are we even talking about this? What does it have to do with making widgets or providing a service? They can't answer that question because the answer, it has nothing to do with it. It's purely political. And when you say that, it's completely reasonable, completely logical. But mm-hmm. again, it doesn't necessarily mean that when you use all the reason and the logic in the world that these conversations nope. will go smoothly, that HR is going to agree with you, that they're going to see the light, that you're mm-hmm. not going to have trouble with your coworkers. You know, I got a couple of emails from somebody, uh, from people who work with someone who has transitioned and they're wondering, you know, how much do I have to give in to this in order to just get along? I mean, these are complicated issues. They are. Um, 
it, it's just extremely difficult. Somebody was also asking about, uh, I believe she's a nurse and she was saying, you know, she's noticed like on all the intake forms, for example, now that when you come in, they ask for your gender identity versus, you know, the sex assigned at birth. Like we talked about earlier, she feels like she kind of has to go along with this, right? Because this is just part of the forums. At what point do you say, hey, this violates my conscience? Somebody else is a software engineer and he mentioned that uh, he's being asked to put uh, certain fields on forms that ask again about gender identity identity. So, you know, there are so many different shades of this conversation in the but, workplace. But you did, you did mention Alliance Defending Freedom. If somebody actually feels yeah. that they have a lawsuit, oh, yeah. something that raises that rises to that issue, Alliance Defending Freedom is an amazing organization to reach out to. Hey, can we go back to what you just said about the, the nurse for a second? Yeah. Because she would have grounds on, on or medical grounds to question that. Why? Because if you don't identify what your biology is, we might not be able to treat you properly because there are more than 6,500 differences between men and women that have to do not only with their biology, but psychology and other differences, how they metabolize medicines, right? Obviously, men don't need pap smears and women don't need prostate checks, right? <laughs> there are things that need to be, that people need to be treated differently based on their their sex and if you don't identify that if you say you're non-binary coming in that's a lie you're one or the other and we as medical professionals need to know what you are if we're going to treat you properly and so that lady would have a reason to say just from a medical perspective let's just identify what they are biologically what what they are gender wise that's another question but what what are they biologically? We need to know that in order to treat them properly. Yeah. Yeah. And she was suggesting in her email that, you know, Christian doctors should actually take the lead in this and, you know, make sure that their intake forms properly reflect mm -hmm. these things. There are certain right. things that Christians in these professions can do. Doesn't make it easier, you know, for the person no. who's dealing with it, who's the nurse. But, um, yeah, it that that's just so hard. Well, like I said, we had dozens of questions, but let's end on this one because you brought it up earlier. This is something I know you and I are both passionate about and and talk a lot about, but how do we get more pastors to address this issue? Someone said here in the South, many keep dodging the issues. She recently heard a pastor say, quote, we don't involve ourselves in the culture war. We just preach Jesus. <laughs> Let's just take a second to sigh really okay. loudly. And then how do we answer that question? How do well, we get more pastors to care, more pastors to realize the problem with saying we just, quote unquote, preach the gospel? One, uh, questions once again. Number one, do laws affect your ability to preach and live the gospel? The answer is yes. If you don't think so, go to some of the countries I've been to, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China. You can't have legal churches there that aren't sanctioned by the government. Why? Because politically they've ruled it out. Politics affects your ability to preach and live the gospel. So that's number one. Number two, I would say you just need to ask two other questions. Number one, should Christians care how people are treated? What Christian's going to say no? Whether they're conservative or liberal, they're going to say, well, of course. Second question, should Christians care how people are treated by their government? Well, yeah, if we're supposed to care how people are treated, we should care how people are treated by everybody, including our government. Welcome to politics, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you can't avoid it. And not only that, if you go to places like Canada, the Bible's now political. You can't preach certain Bible passages without the government coming down on you. Right. Are we going to keep saying, 
oh, we're not going to get involved in things that are political. First of all, <laughs> gender was never political 20 years ago, right? Marriage wasn't political 30 years ago. Abortion wasn't political 50 or 60 years ago, right? What changed? It's not the church that has brought politics to the pulpit. It's the culture that has brought politics into every single issue. And so what can pastors preach on anymore? Mode of baptism? Is that it? You know, (laughs) salvation by grace? We should. But is that all we can preach on? What happens if the government says you can't preach that anymore? Are you going to say, oh, I can't get involved? No, this is madness. And, you know, Eric Metaxas in his book, um, Letter to the American Church, talks about how, because he also wrote the, the seminal biography of Bonhoeffer, the, uh, the, the German pastor who stood up against Hitler and was ultimately killed for it. He points out that the churches in America are doing the same thing the churches in Germany did 80 years ago. They're looking the other way. And that is not being salt and light. That is not helping people to know the truth. That's abandoning people when you have the cure. Why would you do that? To keep more butts in seats? You know, the reality is that, yeah, if you start preaching on issues that are controversial in the culture, a lot of people are going to get up and walk out of your church. But the data show that a lot more people are going to walk in and they'll be fully devoted disciples of Christ. Uh, and Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council has done the research on this, and he says that's what happens. And you can see it anecdotally. You can see it at Jack Hibbs's church right there not far from you, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, which is like doubled since COVID, right? You start speaking the truth on these issues, and people are going to say, yeah, that's somebody I can follow. I mean, if you're just going to talk about surface issues all the time, why not just stay home and watch MSNBC or CNN? You're going to get the same message there. Right. What's the point? Speak the truth. Leave the results to God. That's what we're here to do. Well said, Frank, you've been very generous with your time today. So much appreciate you coming on the show, working through all these listener questions, talking about your book, Correct, Not Politically Correct, about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. This is the expanded third edition that you're looking for. I will put links in the show notes to get the book. It is a just a great, concise book that's easy for anyone to understand. You know, People are always asking me, how do I talk to my kids about this? And this is a great book to go through because it's just to the point on all of these issues. So you're going to want to make sure that you get the book. Thank you so much, Frank, for coming on the show today. Thanks, Natasha. And don't forget, people out there, that you and me and Elise are going to be together in both Tucson and Nashville coming up for the Unshaken Conference. And we're going to get into some of these issues there. And we're going to take questions there too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be in Tucson, Arizona on September 23rd and Nashville on November 4th. So if you go to unshakenconference.com, those tickets are available and uh, you can learn more about the conference there. And we definitely talk about all of these issues and a lot more. Frank, where can people find out more about your ministry? Yeah, go to crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it.org. By the way, Amazon has been sold out of the correct, not politically correct book for a while. Uh, So if they still say they're out of it, we have it at crossexamine.org. Just go there and click on store. You'll see it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening today. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a minute to rate and review so you can help me get the word out to more people about the show. Thanks for your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.